I come from two long lines of teachers and preachers, both sides of my family. And long before I ever knew that I would be a Dharma teacher, long before I ever knew anything about meditation, I knew that I'd be an educator. There's a story in my family that I vaguely remember that when that I actually gave my first formal teaching when I was seven years old. I came up with a lesson plan. I got the materials together. I convinced an adult to let me take leadership. And I went back to my first grade classroom and taught them some lesson. <laughs> right, well, you know, I have no idea how it went. My memory of it was it was a joyful experience, which probably allowed me to continue um, taking risks and being of service in this field of education. And then, of course, later, uh, what? The other side came in, the spiritual side came in. And so now I'm a full-time Dharma teacher, a meditation teacher. And I mention that because on this, birth, on this day when we celebrate the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King, his, his actual birthday was last Wednesday, this national holiday, uh, this great preacher, you know, agent for change in the world. I want to bring in a story of yet another agent for change and uh, an educator actually from India and weave that story with these teachings. And this educator that I want to share her story about and Dr. King were both heavily influenced by the teachings of Gandhi. These teachings of nonviolence, of truth-telling, of justice and reconciliation. So the story that I want to tell about the educator, it's it's an educator having been a lifelong educator myself. I tend to track innovative educators on the planet. And this is one I'm very much respecting and tracking right now in my own life. And her name is Karan Birsetti. She lives in India. And in 2001, she founded a school. It's called the Riverside School. I'm not going to be able to say the name of this, this city correctly, so forgive me. Amidabad, Amidabad, India. And so it's a primary school, and it's based around these six beacons of learning. And it's about creating curious, competent citizens. There's a real spiritual um, underlie with this school. So she developed a project within the school that's called APPROACH. And APPROACH stands for a protagonist in every child. And what it's doing is it's fighting stereotypes of modern kids as rude and delinquent and looking for ways to challenge the children in the city to be curious, competent citizens. There's a three-step process that they embrace. Number one, aware. Number two, enable. And number three, empower. And as she flushes it out, she says, aware means to see the change. Enable means to be changed. Empower means to lead the change. So, On Independence Day in India in 2007, 300 kids celebrated that day by doing something highly unusual. They embarked on a project where they took eight hours making incense. Why did they do that? Because there was a whole group 
of children who were barely paid or not paid at all in the city whose work was to make incense. Now, they spent eight hours doing this. It's backbreaking, detail-oriented work. It's utterly boring. And when they were done doing it, um, to really embrace in direct experience the process of doing this work and what it's like, the mind states, the physical states, not so different when we look in ourselves in our meditation practice, direct experience, mind states, physical states. They then went out and started interviewing people in the city. They interviewed the government. They had interviews in the newspapers. They talked to people on the street and their question was this. These are the kids' question. When are we going to outlaw illegal child labor practices and treat children with respect? There was an amazing result that I want to share with you. The result of this practice of taking on the suffering of another group of people in the city and then asking people to look inside themselves in this open question. The result was that the city decided to take one day every other month, shut down downtown and open it up freely to the kids of the city. 30,000 kids doing you know, sports, art, theater, all kinds of things in the middle of the city completely changed the environment of this urban area. It didn't end there. It was so successful that the kids from Riverside School contacted 100,000 other children in 35,000 schools and said, you can do this too. And it started spreading across India. So we're talking about large numbers of people. Kiran says this, the whole premise of the school is to blur the boundaries between school and life. When educating the minds of our youth, we should not forget to educate their hearts. That's the premise of the education for this school. As I said, I've been tracking this school and I've been tracking her work um, because it's spreading worldwide. It's actually landed now in the United States as well. When I read the line, blur the boundaries between school and life, I knew that I had to bring this here and share it with you on a Monday night because what I wanted to reflect on with you and talk about is this process of blurring the boundaries between what we do when we come here and sit here quietly and watch our breath and how that's actually impacting our lives and our work in the world. When I talk about this, I have a word that I use for it. I call it bridging. So if we think about what is a bridge, a bridge is connecting two seemingly separate things or two seemingly separate places. It's connective. And so we're bridging. <coughs> then I was reflecting back on all my years here at Spirit Rock and realizing that now in 2014, this concept of bridging our practice to our life isn't news for a lot of us. And how new that is, actually. So these days, we have scientific data showing the positive impact of meditation on the brain and the nervous system. We see the positive influence of mindfulness in our schools here in this country. In the Bay Area, we have the wonderful work done through mindful schools. 
Many people have benefited from mindfulness-based cognitive therapy for relapse prevention, working with depression, and even more people have benefited from mindfulness-based stress reduction as developed by John Kabat-Zinn. So I'm just curious, here in this room, how many of you have either heard about one of those things or benefited yourself from one of those things? These are all bridges of these formal teachings with a life. Yeah, so about half of us, maybe a little more. That's a wonderful thing. Because back when I started meditating 20 years ago, give or take, that wasn't so true. It wasn't as available. It was quite a leap to think about what does closing my eyes and being quiet have to do with living a life? It's really why I showed up here at Spirit Rock when I was 18 years old. I knew something about mindfulness of breathing and I knew that I really needed tools. There was a lot of suffering in my life and I knew I needed tools. And I knew there must be more. Um, and so I came here and Jack Hornfield was here and he and others provided tools as they do to this day. You know, bless them. Lives of service. Lives of service. But there were a lot of things that weren't present here. So I'll tell you a few things that weren't present here then that are now that you might benefit from. First of all, no one ever suggested that I go to a beginning meditation class. We have beginning meditation series here. If you've been coming a little while and you think, well, whoever's speaking says a few sentences at the beginning of the meditation, I wonder if there's more to it. The answer is yes. And in fact, even if you've been meditating a few years and you've never benefited from hearing the entire set of instructions in Insight Meditation, you know, try one. We have them here all the time. But unlike today, back then, today you can go on the website and find out when they are, where they are, who's teaching it. Back then there was no website. Can you imagine? No Spirit Rock website? Those of you that come often, how often do you go on the Spirit Rock website? It's probably on your favorites list, you know. There also wasn't the layout of curriculum that we have now. And if you go out in the foyer and you pick up a quarterly calendar, kind of our little brochure, um, it will tell you. It will say, if you're new to meditation, try this day. If you've been doing it a while but not too long, try this day. If you've been doing it a long time, try this. And so I really want to honor and acknowledge Sally Armstrong and others who put that together, one of our teachers. And back when she put that together, she was named Sally Clough. You know, things are always changing. <laughs> so to really avail yourself of the resources that this community has to offer. So what I did was I just muddled through. And I feel like I didn't actually learn the breadth and depth of the meditation practice until I started going on retreats at the retreat center. What that meant was I did a lot of retreats, and I mean a lot of retreats, because I thought that was where the practice was. It's an incredible training. If you haven't done one and your life circumstances allow that, please offer that to yourself. What a gift. And it's one piece. It's just one piece. So first, we start to understand, you know, what are the resources available to us? Then as we're starting to bridge whatever our life experience is with um, these teachings and these practices, you know, there's a piece about learning the language. 
we go into a new field of work, we usually have to learn a new vernacular. Same with, with being here. And I was reflecting on that. I was reflecting on how when I was an early meditator, I thought if I could just learn the language of meditation, then I would get it and I'd be okay. You know? And so many people have come to me and said, oh, I've studied this, I've studied that teaching, and, 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 I, and I don't get it. I remember one particular year, it took a whole year, and I tried to speak, this is a little goofy, I tried to speak with the minimal use of the words I and mine, because I was trying to figure out these teachings. It said the teachings were about it not taking things so personally, and, and not having such tight ownership of things. And so I would say things like, Wanting is arising now when I wanted some chocolate, you know, <laughs> really. And then I would say things like, anger is here when I was totally pissed off about something. Yeah, it's goofy. It's goofy. But it is helpful in bridging uh, the environment here, the culture here to our lives, to learn a little something about the language so that it isn't an inhibitor for us in having access to what's available here. So let's say a few things about some of the common words we use. I've used the word dharma a number of times already. I'm thinking about how many of you raised your hands new. Dharma is a word in mainstream culture these days, but what does it mean? There's many meanings to it. We often use it here to refer to the teachings themselves. The simple translation of it is the truth. The truth as we understand it. I was also mentioning that I was teaching the loving-kindness retreat at the hill, and I was very careful to use the word loving-kindness, because if you look at how the retreat's listed, it's listed as the metta retreat. And metta, in the old language of Pali, is a word for loving-kindness. And as we retranslate the old language into modern English, what we're discovering is that yes, metta equals loving-kindness, but some even more accurate translations of this word metta are friendly, warmth, and goodwill. Just in case you thought to yourself, wow, a whole week of loving kindness, I'm not sure I could do that. I bet you could do a whole week of friendly, or at least open to being friendly. Maybe. (laughs) You know, we can sincerely try. So this issue of on the cushion and off the cushion, as it said, you know, 20 years ago, Jack Kornfield was still pretty, fairly radical when he suggested that we take the practice and weave it into our lives. And it's not so radical anymore, but it doesn't mean it's easy, right? It's an incredible creative process of translation, of being open to two things that look different, having a connection. And the Buddha called this practice of Translation, on the cushion to off the cushion, swimming against the stream. So we're swimming against a stream of cultural conditioning. We're swimming against a stream of I want and I don't want. I have to have it my way or I won't be okay. We're swimming against a stream. But that doesn't mean we need to exhaust ourselves swimming against the stream. You know, we can just get in the flow and know that there are currents moving in other directions and we're going this way. We're going this way. I 
was interesting at the end of the Metta retreat this morning, I was just reflecting on how somebody raised their hand. We had time for questions about how to weave a week-long silent retreat. Nobody talked to anybody except the teachers to check in. And they just spent a whole week wishing well to themselves, to others, to the whole world. And then they were invited this morning to take that on the road. And somebody raised their hand and they had a question about translating the forgiveness practice that we had done on the retreat into the work that they're doing as a leader in a nonprofit organization. They're acknowledging, you know, I, I, I'm a human. I, I make mistakes. I feel badly. How do you take these practices and these formal rituals of asking and offering forgiveness into our organizations? And we were talking about that. It's such a powerful open question. What part is being left out? Which part are we leaving here at Spirit Rock and not integrating into our lives? Not as a reason to judge ourselves that we're missing something, but as a reason to notice and celebrate and include and talk to other people about it because this is a collective process. There's no way that Riverside School could exist without a whole collective of people having ongoing conversations about how to engage in the world in a kind and just and mindful way. So back to Riverside School. Citizenship is a way of behaving, thinking, and learning that supports lifelong personal and community development. Riverside understands that disparity is a reality. And so to practice citizenship for us is to be the change. Here's what they've discovered at Riverside School that many of us have discovered in the meditation culture. The the gravest impediment to change is the don't know, don't care syndrome. I don't know, so I don't have to take responsibility. Or I know, but either we're numb because we're experiencing compassion fatigue. We've given too much. So it goes into indifference. Um, Or we just feel really separate. And so it doesn't feel like it really matters. And we lose touch with the fact that that thing that we don't care about is often a person living a life or a group of people living a life or a habitat living a life. By providing authentic experiences, they become aware of the realities that leads to enablement. And finally, they're empowered to be active change agents. So... If you're into going on websites to be inspired in your Dharma practice, and yes, the Dharma's everywhere. Why wouldn't it be on a website? You you could look up Riverside School, and there are these amazing photos of the children's service in action out of these dual qualities of mindfulness and compassion and also service. So there's this one photo. They were at the local (coughs) hospital in the children's cancer ward. And they'd made cards for each other. And it was a long, ongoing relationship. So it wasn't just like a casual visit. There was another program that each child got a buddy. um, And their buddy was not in school because they lived in one of the local slums. Huge urban area, this city. There was another set of photos and, and pieces about serving lemonade at a charity walk. They have a joy-giving week that was inspired by the life work of Gandhi. And they each develop projects on the theme of doing good. 
What if we each developed a project on the theme of doing good? Not that we need another project in our lives. I understand. Simple. Simple is what we can manifest. And simple counts because there's seven billion of us. That's a lot. No. The theme of doing good. So I wanted to take their, their three premises and uh, weave them with these teachings uh, just as a way of revealing, ah, all doorways lead into these teachings if we only have the eyes to see. So the teachings from Riverside School, again, are these. Aware, see the change. Enable, be changed. Empower, lead the change. And I want to weave them with a very traditional teaching from the Buddha. It's a teaching of the three characteristics of human existence. And did you know having a human existence, three characteristics, according to the Buddha, what are they? Firstly, everything changes. Secondly, when we hold on, it hurts. And thirdly, it's not as personal as we thought. So I'm not asking you to take my word on anything in this reflection. The invitation of all these teachings, and it's, it's why I could land in this tradition, it's why I could stay in the tradition. The invitation is to look and see for ourselves what is relevant, what is useful, and use it. So firstly, aware, see the change, or as the Buddha put it, everything is changing. So this is the piece where mindfulness comes in. Mindfulness being a non-judgmental, friendly, present moment awareness. Just here, just here, just here. Interestingly, especially combined with this danger of not caring that I just spoke about, mindfulness doesn't care what it's mindful of. But it's a beautiful not caring because it means it's available to connect with any object at all. Sights, sounds, smells, breath, touch, listening to somebody, holding a hand, anything available, totally available. And so in being aware and seeing change, we can bring this quality of present moment attention with curiosity to our direct experience of being human. This body, you know, as it is, this mind, as it is, Maybe you were meditating, you're thinking, oh, I'm thinking so much. Eh, mindfulness can be aware of that. And see, even how that storytelling keeps changing and ebbing and flowing, if we have the eyes to see. So we can bring a quality of curiosity to the change, a quality of deep investigation, which is actually a factor of awakening to the change. And what we see is we get more and more curious more and more precise with this mindful awareness is that the change is profound. It's just ever-present. It's in everything. And that can be a cause either for a great amount of uncertainty and even fear and acknowledge that. And in the very same breath, it can also be an opening into relaxing into the flow of life which brings us to the next piece about when we hold on, it hurts. So 
when we hold on, it hurts, or by Riverside School, enable, be changed. If we move into the flow, we're not holding on. It's like a rope, right? We hold on to it, we get rope burn, classic example. If we're willing to be changed, there's a possibility of interconnection, of not separate, because we're moving with things instead of struggling against things. And fill in your own blank with what you struggle with. You know, there's, a, there's a million different possibilities of things we could struggle with. When the struggle starts to cease, we notice connection instead of separation. And, you know, in the heart here, there's a longing for connection. There's a longing. So I'll say a little bit about how the Buddha worked with these two things. Firstly, the, the piece about change and waking up through the doorway of seeing change. Before the Buddha was the Buddha, his name was Siddhartha. And he came from a good family. They pampered him. They over-pampered him. He definitely came from a, a world of privilege. And when he was in his late 20s, after having a life of privilege, really before that he started to get impulses that, you know, there, there must be something more than this. Something's being left out and I don't know what it is. Um, but by the time he was in his late 20s, there were some real wake-up calls for him. And at one point, he left the privilege of his palace because his family was of uh, the Sakya clan, kind of low-level royalty in ancient India. And he went out to go be with the rest of the community around where he lived. And that was an unusual event for him. It's kind of like when we go somewhere into a community that we're not familiar with. And how enlivening and, um, you know, also a risk that is. Maybe it was a risk for you to come tonight, if it's your first Monday night. I remember when I came here my first Monday night, I was so nervous. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know how to behave. If it's your first Monday night, I just want you to feel at ease and welcome and comfortable. And don't worry, you know, we just kind of watch everybody else and figure it out. It all works out. Anyway, back to Siddhartha. He went out. He took a risk. He went out several times and he saw several different things. The first thing that he saw um, was somebody who was very advanced in age. And that he had been shielded from that in his home. It's not actually so different from the way that sometimes we're shielded from some of the processes of aging by having all of these care homes where it's separate. And, and really acknowledging the, the, the benefit and, and the helpfulness of, of that care that's being offered, but also it's separate. And so he saw someone who was elderly. The next time he went out, he saw somebody who was really, really sick. And uh, he hadn't seen that degree of illness before. It's not so different when we have our health and then we don't, or someone we love. And have you noticed how it's in degrees? No. It's like, I think that I know something about illness, my own and yours. And then there'll be a new type of illness that comes into my life, somebody I know, an illness that I haven't caretaken for. I've caretaken a lot of dear ones. And it's like, oh, and there's this piece. It's always unfolding for us what it's like to meet that. The next time he went out, he saw uh, his first dead person. I always thought it was amazing that I could live to be 23 years old and never see a dead person. 
first time I saw somebody who died, at, you know, blessings, it was actually my mother. Um, you know, I'd never seen somebody who died. That's a strange thing to live to be 23 and not see somebody who's died. It's happening all the time. All the time. And so he was woken up by this. And then the last time he went out, he saw somebody who was deeply committed and had given their whole life to the spiritual path, a seeker. And he went, oh, you know, aging, sickness, death, something more. I'm going for the something more. You know, it's like letting the rawness that is sometimes a part of the change. Now, change can be beautiful as well. The cycle of health after an illness. I'm so grateful. I'm sure you are too. But uh, he had his wake-up call and he said, okay, I'm going to let change be a catalyst. I'm going to see the change, aware, in Riverside School. And then enable, be changed. He went on six years of a spiritual journey. And at the end of six years, he ended up under the bow tree in Bodh Gaya, in India. Still there, the descendant. And so he sat under the tree and allowed his mind and heart to be changed. To be changed so deeply that there's no going back. Full enlightenment. Just because he had that process, we have that inspiration. But we don't need to think, well, it's not going to happen to me. Because I won't ask for a show of hands, but I know in a group this large, many of us, in ordinary and extraordinary ways, have had a transformation of mind or heart due to difficulties, due to wonderful things, that there's no going back. Our vision is changed. Our view is different. You know, it's a gift. Here's the thing. Still unsatisfactoriness. We can have that shift and still... No, a toothache, still, a traffic jam, still something, you know, or annoying somebody. At the Loving Kindness Retreat up the hill, we did an entire day of meditation on metta for the difficult person. <laughs> and we chose one difficult person to stand in for all difficult people who have ever been difficult for us in our whole lives. But the other thing that we acknowledged was that person that we were using as a muse for friendliness and goodwill was not born into the world inherently difficult. What makes the difficult person in metta practice difficult is that I have a difficulty with them. So we still have this unsatisfactoriness. We still got bodies, they're still going to age if we're lucky, get sick, pass on, all these things. And so out of understanding all these things, There's this important piece about compassion, about compassionate expression for ourselves, for our families, for the world. Because it isn't going to work out in terms of the like holding on, not holding on. And that's okay. Because there's the caring mind that says, I see. I know it's not easy being a human being living a life, and I care. It's interesting, there's a story of the Buddha associated with this. Right after his enlightenment, he had this dilemma. You might recognize it if you're open to bridging. The dilemma was this. 
there he was fully awakened. Any insights or awakening any of us have had, you know, it's pretty nice, you know? So he was sitting there in meditative bliss, in enlightened bliss, and the thought came up, I wonder if I should share this with somebody else. I wonder if I should teach. And then he thought to himself, nah. You know, what I've understood is too subtle. Nobody's going to understand this. It's too much work. I'd rather just sit here in, in enlightened bliss. Um, but that's not what happened. What he saw was that there were those with little dust in their eyes, it said, which means he had this intuition that some might be able to understand. How many times have we given of our time, of our energy, of our hearts, because we just had an intuition that somebody might benefit, and we didn't know, and we didn't know how many, but we did it anyway. It's actually why I started teaching. I was first asked to teach when I was 24 years old. I know. Um, And I was asked to teach youth here. The thing was, was I was trained as an elementary school teacher and I was being asked to teach teenagers meditation. Kind of freaked me out. I thought, oh, they're not gonna want that. I don't wanna impose anything on them that they might not want. And I really thought about it, not so different than the Buddha, if we're bridging. And I thought, you know, these teachings have changed my life. These practices have changed my life, even at that point, when I've been meditating only, you know, a little less than 10 years. And if I can share something, and one young person can benefit from that, that's worth me moving through my fear and taking a risk. I bet that you've had something like that too. And I had no idea it was going to end up here. That was totally unknown. So aware, enable, empower. Everything changes when we hold on, it hurts. It's not as personal as I thought. So empower, lead the change. In order to lead the change, knowing that things aren't as personal as we thought is really, really a skillful resource. Um, When we're giving back, when we're offering service, when we have an appropriate response and we manifest it. I want to share something that's been slightly viral on the internet recently, so I Somebody sent it to me, and it just totally inspires me. I hope it inspires you about this. When we step outside our personalness and start to give. And it's about a mother, a woman from South Africa. And I'm going to say her name really carefully because I want to get it right. Bodil Hu... Okay, Bodil... Hala, Boda Hala, that's her name. And when she turned 38 years old, she created a vision board for herself. Here we are in January. I'm sure there's been some intentions set and perhaps some vision boards. It's a good time of year to do that. So she created a vision board for herself um, about her life and how she wanted to move it forward. And after she created the board, This is what she said. The things I thought I did not have, I do have. Thanks to the wisdom of my eight-year-old daughter, I understood that my vision board was actually a gratitude board. 
And so she took this vision board that transformed through the eyes of her eight-year-old daughter into a gratitude board, and she decided to do 38 acts of kindness for her 38th birthday. She says, doing the things I love and sharing them is like giving away a happy piece of me. First, you have to acknowledge you are blessed and have everything you need. So here are just a few of the 38 things that she did. If it inspires you to do them yourself, great. You'll be part of a worldwide community that's been inspired uh, by her actions. I'm sure that some of you have your own acts of kindness that you're manifesting every day. So one of the things that she did was she went to her local hospital and signed up to donate her organs after her death. She said that her donated organs can save seven lives. She also said, they will be no use to me when I'm dead. (laughs) Very true. The next piece, she said, was, it's a choice to smile and share it. And so she gave all the local cashiers in her neighborhood chocolate to go to the store and hand them the money for the purchase with a piece of chocolate. Another thing that she did was learn somebody's name on the street and greeted them by name. She said, it makes their face light up, which makes my face light up. This one was one of my favorites. She was trying to convince her eight-year-old daughter to give away her her outgrown clothes. And her daughter took each and every item of clothing and kissed it and thanked it for keeping her warm and sent wishes to the next little girl that would wear it. And then, so her heart was opening. And then her heart closed, and she got really upset. Um, She got upset that in giving away her clothes, she was giving away her memories. So there was some attachment. Her heart closed. And her mother stayed with her through this and said, okay, we don't have to give away these clothes. We'll think of another thing. And through that appropriate response, allowing the heart to expand as big as it wants to be and contract as deeply as it's going to, her daughter came around and was able to offer those clothes. So there were actually two gifts of kindness in that, although I don't think she counted them both. She left notes on public restroom mirrors saying, you're beautiful. (laughs) She said that the very hardest thing that she did offering an act of kindness was watching six hours of sports with her husband. I guess she didn't like sports. (laughs) And then the last one that I want to share is she crocheted a cap for a little girl who was standing at one of the stoplights with her mother, and her mother was begging. And so she pulled up at the stoplight that day that she pulled up at every day and and offered this little girl this beautiful cap, you know, and, and tears and smiles all around. She says, being kind is showing yourself kindness. So we'll talk a little bit more about this not taking it so personally. This whole piece of self and not self. Of course we have a self. If you say, Heather, I'm going to say yes. I'm not going to look over my shoulder and, you know, somebody else. It's me. You know, we've all got these bodies. And they walk around with us changing and we struggle with them our whole life long. Not somebody else's, um, you know, unless we're the beneficiary of an organ transplant. You know, in which case it, 
integrates in. Um, this teaching of not-self or not taking it so personally is a subtle one. And a wonderful way to look at it is just when we talk about not taking it so personally, that it's not self. It's not all about self. It just means that the self that we think that we are isn't as solid and separate as it appears. Which means that we get to be born fresh every moment. And it's an incredible act of generosity to allow our loved ones and our colleagues and the people that we interface with to also be born fresh in each moment. Just because they were angry last week, we don't need to treat them as the angry person this week. Although, in our family systems, it's easy to get into that, right? (laughs) So back to the Buddha. Out of this understanding of not taking it so personally, the Buddha spent his entire life in service to others, teaching others. And he didn't just teach people how to meditate. He taught them how to speak the truth in difficult circumstances. He taught them how to stay true to their deepest intentions. He taught them how to give skillfully. He taught them how to solve conflicts between individuals, and he was often a mediator between communities and even nations within ancient India. He prevented several wars and was unable to prevent several others. So he's really an example of how we can awaken and be free in this life, not just in an extraordinary way, Although, of course, his manifestation was extraordinary, but with very ordinary life circumstances. So we'll return again to Riverside School in India. The theme of the school is I can. And they talk about the I can button and how it's contagious. So, of course, then I'm hearing the echo in my ears of, yes, we can. And the times in this country when tens of thousands of people have all said together, yes, we can. Uh, Kiran Bersette's early training was actually as a designer. She wasn't um, originally trained as an educator, the founder of Riverside School. And one of the commentaries about her talks about how you can see her early training in design in the way that she looks beyond what exists to ask this question, could we do this a better way? This, in in the case of the education system, could we do this a better way? But plug in your own this. Could I do this, whatever this is, in a better way? And in fact, one of my favorite moments in the story of Siddhartha becoming the Buddha is a very, very similar question. And the question happened at this key moment after he'd been traveling around, learning meditation from all these different teachers, mastering every technique, um, being so ardent in his practice and following some of the courses of the day that actually led to his physical decline um, from starvation, denying the body. That was one of many forms of practice at that time. And so he almost died. And at the point when he was so thin that he actually almost died, something happened. And it's been an important open question for me my entire practice life. He had this thought, 
might there be another way? And out of this thought, might there be another way? He had the insight that it might be skillful to put nourishment in his body, to not deny the body so that it's going to die. Even though there were a lot of powerful practitioners and, and teachers at that time saying, this is the way. You know, that's why this practice is we look and see for ourselves, not this is the way. We look and see for ourselves. He said, might there be another way? And he took the rice milk from young Sujata uh, in a village under another tree. And he was sustained. And he had the intuition to go to where is now Bogaya and to sit under that bow tree and to set his resolve. I think there is another way. I will sit here until I fully awaken. May it be so. And it was so. And we're the beneficiaries of that. 2,500... 50-odd years later. Amazing. So today, Riverside School, they are the number one day school in their state. Their state's in the northwest coast of India. And in addition, they rank number one in India, the entire country of India, number one, in two parameters of excellence. The two parameters are life skills education and conflict management. Yes, that is what we're actually training in here. One whole set of life skills and definitely conflict management because when the inner struggle decreases, there is freedom. And out of that freedom, we can go out and we can see the struggles in our families, in our communities, in our workplaces, in our political realm, and we can say, might there be another way? What can I do to be an an agent for change today? Small ways. Small ways. So as I said, this this work that Kiran is doing uh, is spread internationally. It's spread to 35 countries, and I'm happy to say including the United States. So may it increase and increase the same way that the Dharma in this country is increasing. May it increase and increase in many different beneficial ways, both secular and spiritual. At the end of the Metta retreat this morning, one of my colleagues and dear friends I was teaching with, Larry Yang, um, was giving kind of a talk for people to go out into the world. And, uh, and practice. And he said over and over again, Dharma is everywhere. If only we have eyes to see it. If only we have the intention to live it. Dharma is everywhere. And he just kept inviting the community, asking the community, please, see the Dharma everywhere as your practice. Shift your view so that you can see, so that you can include. It really inspired me. So I want to end with a quote that is connected with a a great hero in meditation practice in my life. She's no longer alive, but definitely an inspiration for me. So this is Deepama, our our great uh, teacher uh, from Calcutta, India, who went through a tremendous amount of suffering in her life. She was a mother, grandmother, wife, and lost a lot of her family members, 
almost literally died, completely lost her health due to grief. And long before mindfulness-based stress reduction was an option for the dire medical cases, uh, she was invited to the local meditation center as a last resort. It turned out that she had an incredible aptitude for meditation and completely transformed her mind and at the same time, her health. She spent the rest of her life being of service to, uh, she particularly taught the other housewives in Calcutta, uh, the children, and a lot of Westerners. Incredible teacher. So this is a book about her life. It's called Deepama. It's written by Amy Schmidt. And this is one of the lessons from Deepama's life. Uh, Deepama always said that meditation integrates the whole person This is a commentary by Amy. She says, Buddhists speak metaphorically of leaving the world and coming back to the world. But in truth, there is neither leaving the world nor returning to it. We can't leave or return to our essence, to the rock-bottom truth of our being, because it is and always has been right here, hidden only by a thin film of ignorance, You don't discover it, rather you allow it to come forth, to emerge from the cloud of unknowing that surrounds you. Seeing into your true nature means realizing that you are bound to everyone and everything that lives, that you are indeed responsible for all that takes place in the world. So that is what I have to offer for our reflection this evening. And I would like to invite a short reflection of our community mind. You can just stay in exactly the posture you're in. You know, it's not like we're, we're more aware when we shift posture necessarily. Just taking a moment and reflecting how you bridge what you know from here or if not from here, from meditation, from these teachings, um, which are universal teachings. If you're new to all this, you know the teaching of kindness, of patience, of non-judgment. How do you bridge them in your life? And perhaps out of that, there's an intention that you want to set about how you'd like to bridge it in your life or continue bringing some quality more into the foreground of your life. And then I'm going to invite some of us to be bold and actually say a word of intention or a phrase of intention out loud so that everybody can hear. Because like, the teachings aren't up here. 
I'm just the muse. The teachings are us. You know, we're practicing these teachings. So a few people call out loud an intention that might have come to mind about how you want to bring this more into your life. Self-love. Self-love. Patience. Patience. Compassion. Compassion. Gratitude. Gratitude. Hope. Open-heartedness. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Acceptance. Acceptance. Blessing. Blessing. Generosity. Generosity. Lighthearted. Lighthearted. Love. Love. Isn't that amazing? To just like think about the fact that all these people in this hall in not so long of a time are going to move out in waves into the world with this in the foreground of attention? May it be so, somebody says, yes, may it be so. Yeah, yeah. So I want to thank you deeply for the practice that you're doing, for the service that you're doing in the world, whether you think you are or not, whether you think it's enough or not, is all extra. Thank you for it. Thank you for being a part of this community, that this might thrive and prosper. And so we will end, as we so often do on Monday nights, the simple chant this word in the, um, in the Sanskrit, namo, namo. It's the root of namaste, and namaste, uh, my favorite definition of namaste is the wisdom in me bows to the wisdom in you, and the wisdom in me sees the wisdom in you. So do the root word, namo, and we chant it nine times, and we add harmony, And if you can't carry a tune, we call that harmony here. (laughs) Really. (laughs) So nine times, your full breath, your full mind and heart.
So thank you again. Travel safely till we meet again. And as many of you know, we all turn right going on to Sir Francis Drake. And if we want to go left, we take our first left and we drive through Woodacre. And it supports the local community having safe traffic. Thank you for that practice.